Well, we continue this morning in our studies on the attributes of God, and as we said last week, there's a very uh, practical reason for uh, considering the attributes of God. Every sort of unhelpful anxiety or fear or anger uh, in that moment arises out of our having forgotten or being uninformed about who our God is. And this morning we're going to consider the glory of God. Uh, it's something uh, we talk a great deal about in the Reformed Church, but we sometimes have a hard time getting our arms around what exactly is involved in referring to the glory of God and uh, necessitating the glorifying of God. We're going to consider that this morning, and I call your attention to a very important passage. Actually, we're going to read several passages that bear on this matter of the glory of God. In Exodus chapter 33, verses 1 and following, we read, The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, to your offspring, I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, and the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his arm. Ornaments, for the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Skipping down to verse 12, Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, Bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now <clears throat> your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and show mercy on whom I show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will 
put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. This is God's holy word. Let us pray. Eternal Father, whose dwelling place is the essence of heavenly light, send forth your light and truth so that every secret fear in our hearts, every kind of anxiety might be consoled by your presence and goodness. Grant to us your Holy Spirit that we may know the joy of your ever abiding with us. Grant to us the spirit of truth, we pray, that we might dwell in the shelter of the Most High and abide in the shadow of the Almighty. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Valerie and I watched the 1948 movie classic, The Treasure of the Sierra Madre, a while back. If you know anything about that movie, you know that it's often touted as one of the greatest movies ever made. It's often in the top five or top ten of movies produced in Hollywood. Uh, director was John Huston, which means it's going to be depressing. And the movie is. Um, two of the greatest stars of the day appear in that movie, Humphrey Bogart and Walter Houston. And in that movie, Bogart and a companion are two down-on-their-luck Americans who convince an old prospector played by Walter Houston to help them find the gold that's revered to be in the Sierra Madre Mountains of Old Mexico. And so an agreement is struck and the trio makes their way up into the mountains when at one point Bogart and his companion begin leaping with joy, exclaiming that they have found the revered gold. And sure enough, you can see a vein of gold-colored ore snaking its way through a rocky matrix, but the grizzled old prospector who has more wisdom than those two begins to mock them and laugh at them, saying, that's fool's gold. Don't you know fool's gold when you see it? The movie the treasure of the Sierra Madre has been called many things in popular culture. It's been called a tale about gold and greed and human nature at its worst. But for me, that particular scene is a parable of what is wrong with the human condition. 
You and I have been created by God precisely to enjoy a certain kind of wealth. We have been created to enjoy a certain kind of glory. But you see, humanity is seeking that glory in all the wrong places. Knowing God and seeing Him is true wealth. Being satisfied with God's glory is where true riches are found. But seeking our deepest satisfaction in anything else other than that, in anything else other than God, is like giving your life for fool's gold instead of the 24-karat variety. And it's interesting that in a survey I read about recently, this survey was conducted with people who had left the church. And they were asked this question. They said, under what conditions would you come back to a church or attend a church again? And, and there were many different answers given, but one, the number one answer was this. If I could find a church that would help me know how to experience God in a deep and profound way, and there are a few texts of Scripture, I think, that are more relevant to this unsatisfied desire than this one. I mean, this passage concerns the satisfaction found in tasting the glory of God. Moses experienced God's glory as his unexpected goodness, as his shocking goodness, and God's delight in those who otherwise deserve his judgment. And you see, when we come to grips with human nature as its worst, as Moses did at this point, our deepest instincts are to expect him to be thundering and gavel-swinging and judgment-relishing because that's what we deserve. We expect the bent of God's heart to be retribution for our waywardness, but this passage stops us in its tracks, don't it? Because you see, the bent of God's heart is showing mercy and goodness. The quintessence of human happiness consists in knowing and seeing the glorious goodness of God. So let's consider what this passage says about needing God's glory and seeing God's glory and finding God's glory. First, needing God's glory. Right before our passage is this famous golden calf incident. As Moses is meeting with God, up on the mountain, uh, the people of Israel now turn their hearts away from the Lord back to their gods in Egypt. Aaron fashions a golden calf out of the gold given to him by the people, and the people worship and offer sacrifices to it. And at that point, back on the mountain, the Lord interrupts his meeting with Moses with an announcement, the people of Israel have worshipped the golden calf. And then the Lord fearfully proclaims these words. He says, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. And Moses is horrified, and, and he intercedes, and, and the Lord relents from this disaster that he had spoken. But here's something fascinating. Even though the Israelites had rejected the Lord, the Lord announces in verses 1 through 3 that He will make good on this promise to bring them into the land. 
with Moses as their leader, Israel will lead this wilderness and they will enter the land God had promised, a land flowing with milk and honey. God will send his avenging angel to drive out Israel's enemies and Israel will inherit a land of plenty. God is going to make the people economically, politically, and militarily successful. But there's a problem. Because of the people's continual resistance of the Lord, God's presence, literally God's face, will not go with them. Among other things, that means that God's plans for the construction of a tabernacle, well, his presence will dwell with his people, has now been put on hold. Now, I want you to think about that for a moment. Because isn't there a sense in which this is the very kind of religion the average American wants most? I mean, you can have prosperity and peace, you can have military, political, and economic success, but you don't have to struggle, you don't have to trouble yourself with the presence of God. You won't have to bother with the demands of worship and confession and repentance and obedience and living for the glory of God because God will not dwell in your midst. You can have, you can have the benefits of the existence of God, but without any of the demands of his presence, you see. I mean, isn't that what so many religiously minded people in America want today? But Moses sees things more clearly and he wants nothing to do with that. He wants the only thing that truly satisfies the human spirit, and that is the glorious presence of God. You see, God is testing his people at this point. God is offering them fool's gold rather than the real thing. But Moses knows better, and in order to understand why, I think we need to make two important distinctions concerning the presence of God. First, God's everywhere presence God's everywhere presence. Some might object. They might say, well, in response to God saying, my presence will not go with you, some might say, well, isn't God present everywhere? I mean, isn't he present everywhere? And there is, of course, a sense in which God is present everywhere. The psalmist says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. People experience God's everywhere presence all the time. You know, my family visits my brother's vacation home in rural western Maryland. It's from time to time. I love it out there. It's very rural. It's elevated. It's beautiful. And at some point when we're there, we usually travel just a few miles across the state line into West Virginia, and we visit Cathedral State Park. And it's very appropriately named. It is the largest old-growth forest in the state of West Virginia. And within this little park are hemlocks and poplars, some of which are hundreds of years old. And they are magnificent. I mean, they are huge in diameter. They are towering in height. And as you walk among these stately giants, you feel as if you are in a sanctuary. It's glorious. I mean, with this hushed awe, you marvel and, and you sense the presence of the Creator there in that forest, and countless people have known the same thing, the same experience as they gaze upon a vista from a mountaintop or as they 
Behold the glorious sunrise at the beach. People know the presence of the Creator. But Moses isn't referring to that experience here. He's referring to God's personal presence. You see, that's what Moses wants for himself and Israel. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good, David says. Or again, my soul will be satisfied with fat and rich food and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. That's the glory that Moses wants. Moses is saying there's all the difference in the world between believing in God in some general way and experiencing his personal presence and goodness tasting his glory. Moses is even saying that that if you enjoy many of God's blessings, such as success and, and material prosperity and security and peace, but you don't know God's personal presence, you're settling for fool's gold instead of the real thing. Now, we're touching here on what we touched on last week, and that concerns the purpose of our creation. You know, why did God create us? And the Bible's answer is to glorify God, but that is easily misunderstood. In a letter to a pastor, a woman wrote these words. She said, the question that has always been on my mind is, why did God create us? I remember discussing this with my uncle, and he told me that his pastor told him God created us to glorify him. But why would the supreme, omnipotent Lord need us, feeble humans, to glorify Him? It just seems so egotistical. Now, that's a common misunderstanding, but you see, it forgets that God is a triunity of persons and just instead of just a single person. I mean, if God were just one person, if He was only one person, then the moment He created us, that would have been the very first time in God's existence that He would have tasted love and a relationship and intimacy because it takes two persons to relate. But you see, the Bible says that while God is one, our God is a triunity of persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And what these three persons were doing throughout all eternity before God created us was being ravished in each other's fellowship and love. They were glorifying each other in love. And knowing that experience on a smaller level is what God has created us to know in a personal relationship with Him. You see, the reason God created us is not because He needs glory from us, but so that we might share in the glorious love of the personal Godhead. Now, Moses, of course, does not understand the details of the triunity of God at this point. That knowledge will have to wait for the appearance of the Son of God in human flesh when Jesus comes. But Moses does have a sense about what we're talking about here, and he knows that sharing in God's glory is the only thing that will satisfy the human heart. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forever, David says. We know the fullness of joy that comes as we devote ourselves to the glorious personal presence of God. Needing God's glory and then seeing God's glory Even when we've understood our need for God's glory, Moses requests, God, please show me your glory can leave us a little confused. What does it mean? Actually, actually what it means is is wonderful, and two quick observations help us. First, seeing God's glory 
and seeing God's face are the same things. Seeing God's glory and seeing God's face are the same things. The same Hebrew word is used in both cases. To see God's glory is to see God's face. But the second thing is this. The Hebrew word for glory or is kavod, and, and it has the sense of being weighty, of having worth and dignity, and the, and the person of highest worth and dignity is the Lord. God's glory is what makes God God, His distinctive resplendence. I mean, strictly speaking, God's glory is not a single attribute of God. Instead, God's glory is the sum total of all of the attributes of God. God is glorious in holiness. He is glorious in justice. He is glorious in power. He is glorious in truth. And as we see here particularly, He is glorious in His goodness. And that's the quality God causes to pass before Moses. And the New Testament reveals that we obtain the riches and the wealth and the weightiness of knowing God and experiencing His goodness by having Jesus as our Savior. And experiencing being satisfied with God's goodness in Christ, Jesus says, is worth any amount of sacrifice or effort. Listen to Jesus' words. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Now that sounds very much like what David says. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. But again, what's involved in seeing God's glory? Well, it's kind of hard to explain, but we can say this much. It's like being in love. Tasting God's glory, seeking God's glory is like being in love. Don't we, in a sense, glorify those we love? We enjoy each other. We appreciate each other. We build up one another in love. We, we praise one another and rejoice in Him. You see, that is what God has, has created us to know within a relationship with Him in Christ. And when we look at what's involved in glorifying God, I think there are four basic things that we can say about that. And I remember getting these from the old Puritan, Thomas Watson, many years ago. And I have always found these four truths to be very helpful. But, but glorifying God involves appreciation of God. Glorifying God involves setting God highest in our thoughts. For you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods, the psalmist says. We naturally glorify the things we love by admiring them. We glorify the things we love by setting them high in our thoughts. Some of us admire particular kinds of literature or, or art or sports or, or places outdoors or, or particular kinds of people. But you see, glorifying God is to be a God admirer. We admire his attributes. We value his promises to us like the pearl of great price. We set him highest in our thoughts. Appreciation of God. And glorifying God also involves adoration of God. Adoration of God. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. We glorify God when we know him and adore him and praise him as supreme. Supremely wonderful. And 
glorifying God involves affection for God, love for God. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your might. We read in Deuteronomy, just as in the marriage covenant, the spouses forsake all others so that they might cleave to the one that they love. So we glorify God when we devote ourselves to Him and when we cleave to Him in love. Why wouldn't we want to do that? Seeing that that relationship supremely satisfies. And then finally, glorifying God involves subjection to God. We glorify God when we dedicate ourselves to God, when we present ourselves fully to Him for His service. Now, C.S. Lewis is famous for saying in his little commentary on Psalms, he's, he's famous for saying that for much of his life, he thought, quote, how silly for God to command us to glorify him. What an egotistical thing for him to do. What's the matter with him? And then he said, I had never noticed that all true enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. And then he goes on to say that people not only spontaneously praise what they value, I mean, we not only just praise what we value and praise what we love, but then we try to enlist others in praising those things that we love with us. Don't we do that? We say, isn't that great? Or we say, wasn't that glorious? Or we say, come and listen, come and see, isn't that magnificent? <clears throat> you and I are put together so that we can't help but praise the things that we enjoy and love because you see, praise doesn't merely express our enjoyment, but in a sense, praise actually heightens our enjoyment in the things that we love. That's why we praise them, and that's why we enlist others in praising them. We admire the things we love. We praise the things we love. We devote ourselves to the things we love. As our catechism says, what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And then finally, finding God's glory. What does it mean to find God's glory? Well, finding God's glory involves tasting His supreme goodness and experiencing God's goodness is something we see here in this passage that is both dangerous and delightful. God's goodness involves both danger and delight. Moses doesn't fully understand what he's asking for when he says, show me your glory. He was He's asking for something that's impossible, God says. God says, you cannot see my face for no one can see me and live. But there is one thing that God will do for Moses. He would put Moses in the cleft of the rock. He would cover him with his hand until he had passed. And once he had passed, he revealed the glory by proclaiming his goodness to Moses. And we see in that proclamation that God's goodness is dangerous. God's goodness means he won't leave the guilty unpunished. Why is God too lovingly good to let anybody perish? Why can't he just kind of let everyone off? Because God is too good. 
He's too good in the sense that he is supremely just. He's not a judge who winks at someone's guilt and lets them off. That's a bad judge. That's not a good judge, and God is supremely good. But we also see that God's goodness is a delight. How do we experience God's goodness as something that's truly delightful and satisfying, my friends, when we are guilty of the same thing the Israelites do here? Of not loving God with all our heart and mind and soul and strength, of setting our hearts on fool's gold instead of on Him? How do we experience God's goodness as delight when that's our situation? Fool's gold. But we know God's goodness is our delight through Jesus. John chapter 1 verse 14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. You see, Moses got the backside of God's glory. He only got the backside. But you and I in Jesus Christ, we get something better. We get the front side. We get the face. You see, we behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus. Jesus came to earth in human flesh as the Son of God, and we beheld the face of God in glory in the face of Jesus. Jesus had experienced God's glory and goodness throughout eternity. But then, shockingly, Jesus lost the glorious goodness of God. On the cross, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I mean, how startling. For the first time in his existence, the Son of God in human flesh lost the face, lost the presence of God. Jesus, for us, experienced the horror and the danger of God's just goodness. And why was that? It was so that we may know the delight of beholding the glorious face of God. It was so that we might know the delight of admiring God and and adoring God and loving God and serving God. You see, as our representative, Jesus received the justice of God's goodness that we deserved so that we might know the delight of God's goodness that He deserved. The supreme riches and wealth and weightiness of knowing God's goodness is available to any. And it's available to all those who come to God by faith in Jesus. In Jesus, we realize that we are more sinful than we ever dared believe but also cherish more than we ever dared to hope. You see, That's the satisfaction we've been seeking. That's the true goal that we have in Jesus. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you that you look down upon us in all our vain pursuits to satisfy our hearts with things other than you. You saw us settling for fool's gold. And because you loved us so, you sent your Son into this world so that we might taste your glory, so that we might know your goodness and love. 
so that when Jesus comes again, we might, in Jesus, behold you face to face. That's our hope. That's why you have created people, is that they might know you. And that is why you sent your Son into this world, so that we might be saved and know you. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he tasted the danger of your goodness. He, as our representative, suffered the wrath and retribution that we deserve. But he did that so that we might know the delight of your goodness, which he had known with you throughout all eternity, so that we might know your goodness as he deserved. Lord, we pray that through faith in Jesus, satisfy our hearts with your presence and the joy of knowing you. For we ask these things in his precious name. Amen.